listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. You're tuned into the Film, Literature, and the New World Order podcast, where this month, as promised last month, we are going to be discussing Robert A. Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, a book that was first serialized in 1965 and 1966 and published as a novel in 1966, winning the 1967 Hugo Award for Science uh, Science Fiction Novel. And I don't think you'll have to puzzle very deeply if you have read the book uh, in preparation for this episode as to why I picked it. But I guess if I were to summarize the plot of this book, I want to say that it's the story of an anarchist revolution on the moon, but it's actually... Something of the opposite, isn't it? It goes from an anarchist society to a democratic society. <laughs> Going the wrong direction, I think, for for myself anyway. And in order to help analyze this book and its place in anarchist philosophy and, and uh, the, the flow of uh, the history of anarchist ideas, we're going to get, well, a very important thinker on the line. Uh, we have David D. Friedman. And uh, for those of you who don't know, he's an, an economist. Also, uh, he teaches at the law school at Santa Clara University. He's also a writer himself, a writer of science fiction and fantasy and poetry and just a general polymath. So it will be fun to pick his brain. First, let's bring him on board. David D. Friedman, thank you very much for taking the time today. I'm happy to be here, but I have not actually written science fiction. I've written two novels. One of them is really fantasy, and one of them was marketed as fantasy by Bain, but was really what I would describe as a historical novel with made-up history because there was no magic and no elves and dragons and things. Interesting. Well, I don't want to put da- uh, words in your mouth, but I was reading at daviddfriedman.blogspot.com. I'm an academic economist, teach in a law school, have never taken a course or credit in either field. Interests include poetry. Uh, interests include poetry, medieval cooking, science fiction, and fantasy. Well, there you go. My I do write read that. Okay. All right. Well, let's, let's get into this conversation about this book. And I selected this book on the basis of a couple of things. I have been reading about and thinking about anarchist philosophy for years now, but something has really only come up in in recent months for me, which is when researching Samuel Konkin, I noted that he was a huge Robert Heinlein fan who credited The Moon is a Harsh Mistress as one of the books that helped to introduce him to anarchist philosophy in general through Professor Bernardo de la Paz based on Robert Lefebvre, who he actually discovered Lefebvre's work through this this novel. And then recently, while listening to your appearance on Anarchist Standard, I noted that you too also had uh, a pretty close connection to this book that helped you along in your own thinking. Tell us about your own encountering of this book and how it helped to shape where you are right now in terms of sure. your philosophy. What my view was, say, graduating from high school or so, was that I was in general in favor of a laissez-faire system, but that I thought the legal framework had to be provided from the outside, as it were. And I sort of thought I could prove that, even though I didn't have a formal proof. But it seemed to me sort of obvious that you had to have some exogenous framework of laws and law enforcement. Uh, When I read Moon is a Harsh Mistress, it provided a fictional picture of a society in which law and law enforcement were endogenous, in which they were done within the system. As far as I could tell, it was an internally consistent picture. That is, as far as I could tell, reading it, there was no particular reason why that shouldn't have worked under those circumstances. A theorem is defeated by a single counterexample. So once I was convinced that it was possible to have a society in which law and law enforcement were were 
internal to the market system rather than imposed from the outside. That got me interested in the question of how one could do the equivalent in something more like the world I actually lived in. And that produced what ended up as part three of my book, The Machinery of Freedom, which was published 40-some years ago, in which I sketched uh, what I thought a private market society without a government might look like in, in something like the modern world. So from that standpoint, the real in, it's a very interesting book in lots of ways, and I, I think highly of it. But its influence on me was mainly by providing me a... I thought internally consistent picture of a society in which law enforcement were provided within the system. Now, if I'd known more history and anthropology, I might not have needed it uh, because there are, in fact, a variety of stateless societies of different sorts that we know about. But I didn't know that at the time. Well, let's talk then about the uh, the internally consistent, or at least seemingly internally consistent, legal order on the moon in this book. Um, we don't get a lot to go on uh, with that, but we do get to see a little bit of it in, in action with the tourist who uh, becomes on trial um, for his great crime of, uh, what was it, attempting to attempting to kiss a woman. Um, and that scene, of course, goes into some detail about what it is that, that's happening here. And it, uh, it seems to be one in which all transactions are voluntary and uh, are, everyone agrees to the process as it is unfolding in front of them. Uh, tell us a little bit about that process and what it, uh, what it, what it really looks like um, when, you, when you start to pick it apart from a legal perspective. That is, what's happening is that you have an existing set of norms uh, that uh, there's a fairly general agreement, though probably not perfect agreement, about what people can or can't do. And people use private force to enforce the norms, but they use it knowing that if you appear to others to be using norm, to using force in an illegitimate way, they won't trust you in the future, may perhaps use force against you and so forth. So that it's essentially a privately enforced system with a sort of a reputational constraint. And so the what happens for those who haven't read the book is that you've got a girl with a bunch of young men who are probably all her lovers as far as you can tell. It's a pretty clearly a polygynous society because of a high ratio of men to women. And the earth tourist who ends up as a major character in the book sort of makes advances to her of a sort which he regards as perfectly legitimate, which are considered as violating the rules in the in the contact, at least by her, her boyfriends. And they are planning to execute him, but here is a respectable person, the protagonist, Manny, who basically offers to function as a judge uh, in order that uh, what they then do will be seen by other people as legitimate. Uh, I actually gave a talk a few days ago uh, under the title uh, Feud as Law Enforcement, in which I was discussing mainly from a historical standpoint systems in which law enforcement was private and decentralized. And one of the features you need for that system to work is some mechanism such that right makes might. So that the basic, the guts of a feud system are that when you wrong me, I threaten to harm you unless you compensate me. And for that to work, my threat has got to be more believable when you really did wrong me than when you didn't. And the simplest 
almost simplest version of that, which is what we're seeing here, is that all other observers will treat me differently if I make this threat without good basis than with good basis. And you therefore develop mechanisms by which you can assure the other people around you that you're acting correctly. And what those mechanisms are, as I now know, varies a lot from society to society. That the most primitive version I know of, which is still exists, is the Roman child gypsies in England. They're the largest gypsy group in England. And that's an informal version in which what basically happens is that if you wrong me, I threaten to beat you up. It's a small community. People have well understood norms of how you're supposed to behave. If you really have wronged me, your friends won't back you and my friends will back me. If you haven't, the other way around. So therefore, it doesn't make sense for me to say, pay or I'll beat you up if you haven't wronged me. But it does if you have. And that's a very simple version. The traditional Somali system in northern Somalia is actually a little bit closer to Heinlein's system. Because that's one where there are traditional institutions for creating an ad hoc court. And that court's verdict is then binding. The most formalized such system I know about is Saga period Iceland. And there you actually had a legislature, a law code, and a system of courts. But there was no government enforcement. There was no executive arm of government. So the real function of the court verdict is that when the court says you owe me 50 ounces of silver, now everybody else in the society knows that you're the guy at fault. If you don't pay, I have you outlawed. And now when I come to kill you, everybody knows that's fine. I'm entitled to kill you. You're an outlaw because you didn't pay the money the court said you owed. So that's a much more formal version. And Heinlein's is closer to the Roman shawl somewhere between the Roman child and the Somali version in the sense of being pretty informal. But the basic logic of it seems seems workable enough. I think the historical analog that will occur to most readers is probably going to be the Wild West, whether that's an actual, real uh, historical example or just the, the sort of Hollywood mythologization of that. But that's, I think, suggested in some of the language and rhetoric of the moon as something of a frontier type uh, uh, location where it's, as you say, self-enforcing due to reputational reasons and because violence is just a, a everyday part of life, yeah. so people it, it, are very... It's, a, it's fairly densely populated compared to the West. Mm. As you may know, there is a book, The Not-So-Wild Wild West, by Terry Anderson and P.J. Hill, who argue that the traditional view of the West is pretty inaccurate. Uh, and they, in fact, cite my book, as a model of privately enforced law and then argue that the situation in the West fit that story, at least approximately. Uh, but, but in the cases that I'm more familiar with, the, the Comanche Indians were a not very attractive but functional stateless system. Uh, one of the problems that anarchists worry about, should worry about, is how they defend themselves from adjacent states. And in the case of the Comanche, the problem was the other way around. The problem was how everybody within hundred, several hundred miles of them defended themselves from the Comanche because the Comanche had a stateless system in which you got status by raiding uh, the Mexicans and the Americans and the other Indian tribes and getting slaves and, and horses from them. Uh, they were very good at it. Uh, and so they, in fact, were sort of the terror of that part of the plains for quite a long time. I think they blocked expansion across Texas for about 20 years despite the fact that the European the Americans had 
higher technology, larger population. Uh, so that's 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 one example. But that, I think that's probably a closer example than the than the Wild West. Uh, but as I say, the the Roman child, the Somali, the Icelanders are all examples of systems where the f- use of force to enforce rules was private. Well, let's step back for a moment. We jump straight into the the very interesting example, I think, of that scene because it does portray the picture of what this society looks like. But let's take a look at some of the the, the sort of overt philosophizing that the book engages in through Professor uh, Bernardo de la Paz, who describes himself as a rational anarchist. And when asked to say what, what this is, he says, I, can't get al- I can get along with a Randite. A rational anarchist believes that concepts such as state and society and government have no existence save as physically exemplified in the acts of self-responsible individuals. He believes that it is impossible to shift blame, share blame, distribute blame, as blame, guilt, responsibilities are matters taking place inside human beings singly and nowhere else. But being rational, he knows that not all individuals hold his evaluations, so he tries to live perfectly in an imperfect world, aware that his effort will be less than perfect, yet undismayed by self-knowledge or self-failure. A very interesting description. Did Heinlein coin the term rational anarchist in this book? I don't know. Uh... Heinlein modeled Prof partly on Lefebvre and partly, I think, on Lenin, if I remember, or maybe Trotsky on one of the communist leaders in terms of conspiracy stuff. And I would say that Prof is on the whole, uh, to my mind, a somewhat more intellectually attractive character than Lefebvre was. Uh, but there's certainly a relevance. Lefebvre was a pacifist. Uh, one of the things I remember from one of his events was that he was trying to explain how you could enforce rights without the use of force and was doing a very poor job of it. And uh, trying to remember his real name, Dirk is his real name, Sky Dorius was the name the gentleman went, went under, who was a very bright libertarian, sort of went up, took the microphone away from uh, Lefebvre and did a better job than Lefebvre was doing of defending Lefebvre's position. Uh, and I also remember Lefebvre in some historical comment getting Bonnie Prince Charlie off by two generations. Uh, so he was an interesting guy and he was charismatic and he certainly had an influence on a bunch of people. I think he's partly responsible for the Koch brothers, for example. Uh, but uh, I don't think he had a thoroughly worked out, as it were, theoretical theoretical structure. Uh, of course, I don't think Rand did either to take a different and perhaps more distinguished example. Well, I, I would agree with that, but uh, but why why do you think Heinlein was interested in Lefebvre? Well, he was a friend of his to begin with, and if you're going to create characters, there's much to be said for having real people to model them on. Uh, I found myself doing that in various contexts. Uh, Heinlein's an interesting guy, because Heinlein certainly has libertarian sympathies, but at the same time, he really isn't an ideologue. He's really somebody who's interested in ideas. And what, some of the ideas in this novel are anarchist ideas. But even then, as you were sort of commenting at the beginning, it's a rather pessimistic version of anarchy because the implication is that it's not stable once they become independent, that the anarchist society in Moon is really an accident. It's taking place in effect, in parts of a prison where people aren't prisoners. 
so that what's happened for those who haven't read it is that the moon gets used the way Australia was as a penal colony. That once you've been on the moon for a while, it's irreversible because you've adapted to the lower gravity. So the people who are there, even if they've served out their sentences, they can't go back to Earth. Their children can't go back to Earth. So over time, you've accumulated a population of people on the moon who are legally free, but where the only formal structure there is the prison, which they're not really a part of. And so they develop their own institutions. And they don't have any good way of starting a government if they wanted to. Uh, and the institutions develop as, as Heinlein describes them. And then at the end of the book, when they've successfully won their independence, now they have politics like anybody else, and it's pretty clear that they are going to, they'll probably be a freer society than the Earth is, it's your impression, but they are not going to be as free a society as they were before. That part is, is pretty clear, and, and the implication, I think, is that if you want what they had, you'd better go out to the asteroid belt or something like that. So... And I, but I think there's a sense in which I agree with Heinlein. That is, I don't know about that particular situation. But I don't think you can show that anarchist institutions are stable in all environments. So that what I've argued, and I devoted a chapter in the third edition of Machinery, which came out a year or so ago, to discussing this, that there are certain circumstances in which the system I describe won't be stable, in which it will collapse in one of several different ways, other circumstances in which it will, that I'm an anarchist in the sense that I think that there are a reasonable number of circumstances in which it will work and that when it works, it's likely to be more attractive than alternative institutional arrangements, but not in the sense of thinking I can prove that if only you create this system, it will survive, thrive, maintain itself. So, But if you look at Heinlein, if you look at other things in Starship Troopers, he's describing a different interesting idea. Right. Also an ingenious idea. Uh, in that one, the idea is a democratic society in which the requirement for voting is that you have volunteered for the military or the equivalent. So the basic, his basic idea, which is sort of an interesting idea, is how could you select voters who valued the good of the society above their own self-interest? And so how do you do it in his system? Uh, volunteering for the military might get you killed. It's not a very attractive profession. Uh, you don't, he says, actually want soldiers voting because they might vote, you know, not to attack or whatever. But ex-soldiers are the people who can vote. And it's not just soldiers. When you volunteer, you might end up, you know, dealing with a, a plague somewhere. You might end up doing something else very dangerous. But basically, you're volunteering to be available to do things that are dangerous and that serve your society. And so the scheme there. So I don't think it would work very well, but I think it's another example of the fact that Heinlein was somebody who liked ideas, and that was the idea he was playing with in that particular in that particular story. Uh, yes, I think his love for ideas comes through quite well in Moon is a Harsh Mistress as well. There's a lot of very innovative and interesting ideas uh, in this book, uh, including some of the ideas that uh, Professor Delabaz just throws out as ideas that they could toy with if, they, if you want to go the democratic route. How about this? Um, some interesting ones. But as you say, it does devolve into that position of democracy and uh, sort of devolving backwards. Um, and 
it is noted a few times by the, the narrator of the, the story, Manny, that uh, this may just be part of human nature. For example, towards the end, he says, uh, but Prof underrated Yammerheads. They never adopted any of his ideas. Seems to be a deep instinct in human beings for making everything compulsory that isn't forbidden. Uh, Prof got fascinated by possibilities for shaping future that lay in a big, sh- big smart computer and lost track of things closer home. Oh, I backed him. But now I wonder... Are food riots too high, high a price to pay to let people be? I don't know. Uh, what's, your, what's your take on this? Is it part of human nature that humans will always want to make compulsory things that they, uh, that they want to forbid? I think that's too simple. I think human nature has a whole bunch of features. And one of them is people not wanting to be pushed around, which helps our side. And another is people... All everybody believing that he's above average in wisdom and that therefore other foolish people should have to do the things that he realizes are good for them and they don't. Uh, I mean, there's a certain sense. One of the concepts that most libertarians and anarchists don't like is a social contract. And I think the way to think of a social contract is not as a voluntary contract, but as a peace treaty. That essentially you have a society... And there's no way that every, not only can, not every, er, can everybody not get what they want, everybody can't even get what they're entitled to because they have inconsistent desires. So that uh, you've got one person who thinks I'm entitled to live in a moral society where people don't have sex outside of marriage or don't have homosexual sex or something like that. Whereas there's another person who says I'm entitled to do what I want with my own body. So what you end up with is some conclusion among those people about how much I can reasonably hope to get what I want. And then you can think of what we call a social contract as sort of a peace treaty in which I say, well, yes, I'm not going to try to shoot you for doing some things that I strongly disapprove of. You're not going to try to shoot me for some things you strongly disapprove of. Here are the compromises that we're living with. Uh, And I don't think... It gives you a moral sanction because I don't think peace, a peace treaty is, after all, a contract made under duress. And our usual feel of it is the contracts under duress are not morally enforceable. But I think it does help explain how real societies work, that there's sort of underlying every society. There's a potential civil war which people are refraining from. You know, that's, that's actually a really interesting way of looking at it, because that puts into perspective the political moment that we seem to be living through right now, not only in the United States, but in Europe, as the, perhaps the peace treaty is breaking down. And yeah, that's, uh, that's, really possible. that's a very worrying possibility for a number of reasons, but, but interesting nonetheless. Um, let's look at the way that this, this story evolves um, in, in Heinlein's universe. They are helped along by essentially a, a sentient computer, which <laughs> I think skews the odds heavily in their favor and uh, makes it certainly into a fantastic story, but perhaps one that is less useful for the purposes of people looking for anything resembling a blueprint. I mean, do you think there is anything here of value for people who are looking for practical solutions about how to bring about greater freedom uh, through, no, through the examination is, of this no, story? No, his circumstances are very different. We aren't in a prison on the moon. In my view, at least, violent revolution is probably not a sensible strategy for bringing about a free society. That a good deal of the reason people want government is that they're afraid of being murdered, having their houses burned down, general chaos and violence. Revolutions involve a certain amount of that and therefore tend to leave people more willing to accept government, not less. Uh, So I think that the 
there are a variety of strategies that might make sense in our world, but I don't think the strategy of his revolution is. That's, that works for the story that he's telling. Let's look at an interesting aspect of that story, which, which jumped out at me at any rate, perhaps because I'm thinking about the ways that fiction can influence real-world thinking about real-world issues. It seems to me that one of the important or very important factors, perhaps, in this revolution was the rallying of the, the sense of patriotism of the loonies by creating the songs and the, the poems and the various artwork that was used to galvanize public opinion in this story. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your perception of that. Yeah, that's, I'm an economist, and that's the sort of stuff that it's hard to do good economic theories of. Uh, but I some. The way I sometimes put it is that you can think of a democratic polity as having a coarse control mechanism and a fine control mechanism. If you ever work with an old-fashioned microscope, and the fine control mechanism is special interest lobbying, and the people who are doing that know exactly what they want, they're experts in the detail, and they're going to try to buy enough congressmen to get the laws that benefit their group. The course control mechanism is majority voting driven by free information that the rational voter is rationally ignorant, that from the standpoint of an individual voter, he knows that his vote has almost no chance of changing an outcome, that if it does change an outcome, he's going to get only a tiny fraction of the benefit from getting a better outcome. So therefore, people don't in fact bear the large costs they have to bear in order to figure out who to vote for. But they do know things, not necessarily true things, but people have a set of beliefs and those beliefs will affect how they react to different programs. So to take a very simple example, uh, think about, suppose the auto industry is trying to buy a tariff. They're, they're trying to get Congress to vote a tax on importing foreign autos, which is a perfectly reasonable thing from their standpoint to want to do. And the question is, how politically costly is it to the congressman to do that? If, every, if almost all the voters view a tariff as a way of protecting American workers from the competition of Japanese workers, since most Americans favor Americans over Japanese, the congressman can not only give the auto companies what they want, they can say, look what patriotic good people we are doing it. If most Americans realize, as economists do, that what the tariff is really doing is protecting American auto workers against the competition of American farmers, since trade basically involves we grow grain, we send it out into the Pacific and the ship comes back with Hondas on it. That's a way of growing cars instead of building them. If, everybody, if all the voters realize that, Congress might still pass the tariff, but it's going to be more politically expensive to do so. People will say, huh, guess my congressman wasn't as good a guy as I thought instead of he's a great guy. So that means that one of the ways, going back to your question of how do you make the world freer, one of the ways you do that is by changing the mix of free information out there. And that's something that somebody like Heinlein was doing or that Rand was doing, that you change people's views, not by saying in order to vote intelligently, you have to understand this, but here's an interesting story. Here is economics that will also be useful to you in running your business. Uh, here is a book teaching economics, but that's fun, that makes it interesting and entertaining. Uh, in those ways, uh, you change the 
general climate of opinion, which I think of as the body of, of free information that people have, uh, and that changes the political costs of doing things. And I guess my favorite example, somebody, I was interviewed a few days ago by somebody who had heard me give a talk in which the title I usually use for that talk is Should We Abolish the Criminal Law? And it's suggesting converting present crimes into torts so that you have a legal system where it's the victim suing rather than the state suing. And he said, how, his basic question is, how can you imagine that you could persuade the American voters to elect congressmen who would do that? And my answer, of course, is I don't. That's not how it happens. What you might do is change the climate of opinion such that if there is a reason why congressmen or judges want to shift the legal, legal system a little bit in that direction, want to treat more things as torts and fewer things as crimes, it will be seen as a good idea rather than a bad idea. And my example for that is that back, I think a little over 50 years ago, Ronald Coase, who was a very important and unconventional economist, published an article in which he said that the right way of handling the airwaves was to turn them into private property. Instead of having the FCC decide which radio stations or television stations were broadcasting in the public interest, you should just sell off the right to broadcast and then let the market allocate. At the time that Coase published that article, I think it was about as crazy an idea as my proposal for abolishing the criminal law, or close to it. It's currently government policy, uh, not as not as full not the full-blown version Coase would have advised, but basically what they now are doing is auctioning off the, the airwaves to the highest bidder. And I think that partly involved a long period of time in which the idea of markets as an attractive way of solving coordination problems, as it were, became more and more accepted. I doubt that there were very many voters who elected a congressman because he said he would sell off the airwaves. But it became a within the range of possible things to do because of changes in ideas starting with Coase's article and many other people's work. And so in the same way, I think what we can hope to do is to make more people assume that government, make more people abandon the assumption that government is a benevolent uh, sort of God reaching out to do things to realize not only the government has no resources of its own, that whatever it uses, it takes from somebody else, but also that government is just a bunch of people like everything else, that those people act in their own interests, not in the general interest, and that the claim that having the government do this will result in the right thing being done is a claim you have to give some justification for, it's not something you can assume. And I think the more you can spread that way of looking at the situation, the less attractive things that uh, use government to control people become and the more attractive free society becomes. So that's at least... Now, there are other, other parts of the tactic. Another thing you can do is to create alternatives so that if 50 years ago somebody proposed abolishing the post office, it would be a crazy idea because everybody knew that nothing would get delivered. If somebody proposes it now, well, all you've got to do is to allow UPS and FedEx to deliver first-class mail, which they legally can't do now, and who know, who cares if the post office goes? It's just one of several competitors in that field. So another thing you can do, at the moment, a large fraction of all legal disputes are handled by private arbitration. 
you might find ways of expanding that, find ways of making arbitration more available to a greater range of people. I mean, that would be one example. I've actually just been reading uh, a book uh, by uh, Edward uh, Stringham about, the title is Private Governance, and it's basically, just here, I can even show you it's sitting here. There it is. And it's a book discussing mostly from a historical standpoint, some of the current, all of the ways in which the kinds of rule enforcement that we take for granted have to be done by government, in fact, have been done and are done by non-governmental mechanisms, often with no support by government, sometimes with the opposition of government, uh, and discussing the different ways in which that's done. It's an interesting, interesting set of stuff. So in general, I think a lot of what you do is you spread ideas. And, uh, and perhaps the most effective way of doing that is through stories like this that are immediately sensible to people, that they, instead of making a, a high, high-sounding, high-pitched philosophical intellectual argument about how private arbitration could work, you can show someone an example of it working within this uh, fictional universe. So I think that... I think there are lots of different tactics for different people. That one of the mistakes that libertarian... If you look at any movement, not just libertarians, but it's true on the left as well, people spend a lot of time fighting each other. And part of the reason is this illusion that the movement has a pool of resources. And if the right thing to do is electing libertarian candidates and you waste your resources writing libertarian books, you're diverting the resources from their best use for bringing liberty, so you're a bad guy, so I've got to persuade you. And it's a mistake. Because those resources belong to individuals. And if I'm no good at, 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 if I don't enjoy politics and do enjoy writing novels, persuading me that writing novels is the wrong way of bringing freedom won't result in more politics. It'll result in my doing something else. So what you really want is for each person to figure out what are the way, what are the things he's good at that he'll enjoy doing and be good at doing that will move you to a freer society. But I'm not trying to write libertarian propaganda. And I should say the economist part in the first novel, part of what's going on is that my protagonist in that novel doesn't have a state, doesn't have tax revenues, doesn't have a draft, and doesn't have anybody in allegiance to him and has to raise an army. And so that raises... How do you go about that? That's right. And the model I was actually thinking of were the Norse armies that ravaged England uh, up to uh, the time of Alfred. Because those were not national armies. Those were entrepreneurial projects. Basically, you have a war leader who says, look, let's go invade England. We can get some land and loot. And in my case, it's mostly a defensive war. But my, my protagonist is constrained by the fact that he has to fight a war in a way which gets very few people killed, because otherwise nobody will come next time, and which as far as possible produces revenue, so that his favorite, a lot of, the, of his warfare is what I think of as logistic warfare, war of maneuver in which you try to get the other side's army someplace where it will die of hunger or thirst if it doesn't surrender. Once it surrenders, he, he ransomed the troops back to the empire. He now has the money for the next time he has to defend. Why does the emperor play that game? The emperor is not stupid. But the emperor can't just say, kill, my, kill your captive soldiers, because the emperor depends on the support of the legions to stay emperor. And having their comrades killed because the emperor is too cheap to buy them back is not going to get the support of the legions. 
So in that sense, I'm trying to think like an economist all the way across in terms of looking at the constraints and the incentives of, of all of the characters. And that was also quite a lot of fun to do. Well, I will confess that I have not read your novels yet, but I do plan to do so. I, they sound fascinating. I'm very much looking forward to getting into them. And I appreciate that you're not trying to polemically make a case for a turn, certain political system within within a novel, because I do think that often comes off hand, ham-handedly. And I would cite Rand as an example of that. I think she's a terrible writer. So <laughs> I'll just say that editorially and uh, controversially. I, I think she is a dubious philosopher, but a brilliant writer of an unconventional Oh, wow. Story. Well, I, I have a, a master's degree in Anglo-Irish literature, so I can make pronouncements about the literary merit or lack thereof. <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> All right. Lots of interesting uh, perspective here on, I think, an interesting book. I think it mm. genuinely works as a book as well yes. as something that we can use to look at these ideas, which is why I think it's so interesting. We'll direct people once again to uh, to your works, to your website. Of course, all of these links will be in the show notes for today's episode, as always. Uh, David D. Friedman, very interesting conversation. I hope we can talk to you again in the future. Thank you. It was fun. All right, friends, there he goes. Once again, David D. Friedman, all the links in the show notes. And let's just go through the comments from last month's edition of this series, where we were discussing The Big Short with Robert Wenzel of the Economic Policy Journal. We had some comments in, for example, from Orenda Review, who talks about the uh, the secret off-books black budget of uh, the secret space program and other unknowable unknowables on uh, the the off-off books of the secret government, the shadow government, and the Fed's role and the BIS role more generally in the finance of these projects. Uh, an interesting uh, line of discussion there. Uh, we had Paul Six talking about how he doesn't buy it's the all the Fed argument for a second. He says it was all the banksters and uh, the role that the Fed has in this is that the top tier super bankster banksters own the Fed and the regulators and therefore can save themselves when their fraudulent speculation schemes go wrong, which to me is the point of that, actually. And that's a point made by Ralpho Davis uh, in rebuttal to that comment. So I'll let you read through that in the comment section and <laughs> summed up in question mark fashion at the end by Voltaic Dude, who, uh, who says, was, is it the banksters or the Fed? Who's the Fed? Also, where's Jekyll Island? <laughs> so just confusion all around. <laughs> Uh, TWRman83536 writes, I don't understand why Martin Armstrong is ignored with his excellent computer model of the business cycle and his extremely accurate predictions for the last 20 years. I, I would reserve judgment on that, but I don't think anyone has extremely accurate economic predictions that we know about anyway, and I think Armstrong doesn't either. And I remember September 2015 has been talked about for years. It's going to be the turning point and all of this. But now, of course, when that turning point arrives, and it's not so much of a turning point now, of course, the talking point becomes, no, no, it's not It's not like everything's going to happen right at that time. That's, that's the beginning of the change in the same way the 2012ers say, yeah, December 21st, 2012, it doesn't mean the world's going to end or change precisely on that day. It's just going to be the beginning of the change so that they can never be proven wrong, which I think is the point. So, yeah, I don't trust uh, prognosticators like that with their magic crystal balls as far as I can throw them. Uh, Home Remedy Supply uh, writes about the uh, interesting tidbit on futures trading of commodities like corn or cotton or oil pointing out that only five cents of every dollar traded on the exchanges goes towards an actual physical delivery of that commodity, which is a large part of price manipulation in the uh, commodities market. So some interesting financial uh, uh, comments there in the sec section on uh, the big short. 
So please do leave your comments in on Robert Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. I think a really interesting book, and we only scratched the surface of it in this conversation, so hopefully you guys can help to flesh that out in the comment section. And also, you can get prepared for next month's edition of this series, where we're going to be discussing the movie Three Days of the Condor. Prepare for that one in April, folks. And until then, thank you very much for joining me. Once again, James Corbett, CorbettReport.com.